Please pray with me. Grant, O Lord, that your word might be spoken here with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I've probably talked about George McDonald here before. I'm, I'm guessing I probably have. He's one of my favorite authors. He was a British author who lived... Um, I say he was British. He was actually... Well, anyway. He, he lived in the 19th century um, and uh, ended his life as an Anglican, at the very least. Um, so there's that. But uh, he, he wrote a series of... Uh, he, he was in ministry, and so he, he wrote some sort of theological stuff. But what he's best known for is uh, a series of what he called fairy tales for grown-ups, or fairy tales for adults, fairy stories for adults. Um, he was basically the inventor of the modern fantasy genre. So you can, um, you know, if you are a Lord of the Rings buff, like I know some of the Sims are behind me, you know, you can, you can thank George MacDonald for being the first one to kind of introduce uh, that mode of writing. Um, but he wrote a, a, a very intriguing fairy story for grown-ups called The Golden Key. And in this story, there are two travelers. There's a, a boy named... Um, Mossy and a girl named Tangle, and they end up on this journey in fairyland, and there's all kinds of mysterious stuff that happens and all kinds of allegorical significance uh, that happens throughout the story. But uh, my favorite part by far in the book is where they discover where they, they're going to end up questing to, where, where they, um, they really want to, where they feel like it's their destiny to go. They reach a, a lake, uh, and, and, and this lake is not full of water, it's full of shadows but substantial shadows, shadows that are shifting and moving kind of like waves in water do, um, shadows that you can sort of feel and touch, and so they start to wade into this lake full of shadows. And as they wade into it, um, they, they start to see shapes in the shadows, these beautiful shapes. Um, it, McDonald writes, after a while they reached more open spaces where the shadows were thinner and came even to portions over which shadows only flitted, leaving them clear for such as might follow. Now a wonderful form, half bird-like, half human, would float across on outspread sailing pinions. An exquisite shadow group of gambling children, that's gambling with an O, they're not playing cards. Gambling children would be followed by the loveliest female form, and that again by a grand stride of titanic shape, each disappearing in the surrounding crest of shadowy foliage. Sometimes a profile of unspeakable beauty or grandeur would appear for a moment and then vanish. Sometimes they seemed lovers that passed linked arm in arm, sometimes father and son, sometimes brothers in loving contest, sometimes sisters entwined in gracefulest community of complex form. Sometimes wild horses would tear across free or bestrode by noble shadows of ruling men. But some of the things which pleased them most, they never knew how to describe. About the middle of the plain, they sat down to rest in the heart of a heap of shadows. After sitting for a while, each looking up, saw the other in tears. They were each longing for the country whence the shadows fell. From this moment in the story, the two set out to find that country and they devote themselves to this quest. Last week I talked about the first chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher of Ecclesiastes devotes himself to the same quest. He looks around him, he realizes that everything under the sun falls short. Everything under the sun is, is really just a shadow. It, it's beautiful, it's there, but it's not substantial, it doesn't last. It disappears and dissipates like vapor in the wind. And so, since everything is here today and gone tomorrow, he resolves that our hope cannot be placed on anything that we can see. It can only be placed on what cannot be seen. 
on God, who dwells above the sun, not under the sun. Only in God, he concludes, can we find meaning and significance and lasting hope. There's a question that I didn't get to address last week. And the question is this. How can we possibly live in the light of things that we can't see? I mean, that's a question you may have learned to stop asking yourself. Um, If you've been in the church for many years, that's a question we sort of learn to stop asking. But it is kind of a hard question to answer, isn't it? How can we live in light of things that can't be seen? How can we live now in light of things that belong to the future? A future that seems so far off that if we're being honest, sometimes it doesn't seem like much more than wishful thinking. How do we walk, in other words, by a light that we can't see? The answer, of course, is faith. We walk by faith and not by sight, we read. In Hebrews 11.1, we read, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The author of Hebrews is constantly dealing with this question of the, the earthly veil that we see, these shadows or types or figures of heavenly things, and the heavenly reality to which we now have come in Christ. Faith, he says, is the link between the two. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's that connecting point between our hearts and the unseen heavenly reality, between our present lives and our eternal destiny. So let's pause for a moment. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, what does faith actually mean? What does that word mean? It's, again, a word we use a lot, but let's pause and actually look at what the word means. The author says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, this use of the word is, is probably the, the use we're most familiar with, it's belief. So if you have faith, you have a set of beliefs. Believing that what God says through scripture is true may be the most basic aspect of faith. And that's probably the idea that comes to mind most quickly for us. It's, it's propositional. It's oriented around the content of the faith. It's doctrinal. It's creedal. It has to do with ideas, truths that may be true or false, and faith is believing that they're true. Faith means intellectually, mentally acknowledging that the ideas presented to us in Scripture, the promises of God, the claims of the church, are true and not false. And that is absolutely a fundamental aspect of faith. But I do think we often make a mistake of reducing faith to that intellectual reality. And we miss, in that case, two other important aspects of faith. The second of which is that faith means trusting in God. So yes, faith means believing what God says. But faith also means trusting in God. When you look at the list, by faith, by faith, you know, that that big, long punch list of faith deeds that we see. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah constructed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, since she considered him faithful who had promised. All of these involve not just intellectual belief, but a heartfelt trust. We read of Sarah, she considered him faithful, who had promised. What's the difference between these two aspects of faith? I I know a man who hates to fly. I'm sure you all know that guy. I'm I'm not thinking of someone in here, but we all know a man who hates to fly, right? He'd rather drive across the country than step in a plane and spend a couple of hours in a plane. And if I were to tell him it's the safest way to travel, he would say, I know. 
If I were to tell him, uh, you know, in, in really nerdy fashion that your uh, chances of being killed on an airline flight are 1 in 4.7 million, he might say, I know. If I were to say you're statistically more likely to die from heat exposure, falling, or accidentally being poisoned than you are in a plane crash, he would say, I know. And I might get frustrated at this point and look at him and ask, well, don't you believe all this stuff? And, and his response wouldn't be that simple. He would say, yes, I know, I know all of that. Sure, it's all true in theory, but he is not going to step inside of an airplane. Because when it comes down to it, the kind of belief that he has in these truths does not translate for him into trust. It doesn't translate for him into the willingness to put his hands, to put his life, his heart, into the hands of an airline, in this case. Faith is not just a matter of belief, it's also a matter of trust. It's not just a matter of the mind, it's also a matter of the heart. And then there's a third component to faith. Faith means believing in the Word of God. Faith means trusting in God, yes. Faith also means faithfulness. Faith also means faithfulness. If you listen to Abraham's story, we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city that housed foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Faith for Abraham was a lifelong journey. And along the way, we, we know fully well that whatever kind of Abraham faith had, if Abraham is a model for us of faith, he is a model for a very halting and struggling kind of faithfulness. He's the guy who laughed when God told him he would provide a son for him. He laughed. Right? That's, that's Abraham. He tried to make it happen on his own by seeking a child through someone other than Sarah. That's Abraham. He used his own wife as a pawn multiple times to try and protect himself. That's Abraham. This was not a man who never wavered in his faithfulness. But in the end, he came back again and again to that place of trust and of belief. And this is how our own faith works, I think. If by the end of our lives we're worthy to, call, to be called faithful, it's only because we too have walked that circuitous route, that rough road over which progress inevitably means stumbling and occasionally falling. Faithfulness is not about a smooth road or quick travel, but it does mean that we stay that course all the same. Faith means not only that we believe, not only that we trust, but that we keep on believing and keep on trusting. So then faith is belief in God, trust in God, and faithfulness towards God. Whenever you see in the New Testament English words related to these, believe, trust, faithfulness, all three of those words are translating the one word in the Greek that we'll call faith. Belief, trust, and faithfulness. So having said that, how do we grow in faith? Having said what faith is, how do we grow in it? Well, two thoughts on that. First of all, faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which means that we don't make it happen. That's kind of hard to accept sometimes. Our colleague asks God for the grace of faith, hope, and love for precisely this reason, that we cannot make ourselves believe something we do not believe or trust someone we do not trust. 
or be faithful. But we also cannot make ourselves sleep, and yet somehow most of us manage to do so on some level every night. If you're like me, you wish you could lie down and just sort of snap your fingers and fall asleep, but that's not how it happens. We can't make ourselves sleep. What we can do is put ourselves in a posture and in a place where sleep can come to us. The same is true of faith. We cannot make ourselves grow in faith, but we can put ourselves in a posture and in a place for the Holy Spirit to grow that virtue within us. As we come through the waters of baptism, as we come forward to receive Christ in the Eucharist, as we fellowship with other believers and seek God through prayer and scripture, we put ourselves in precisely that posture and place. And secondly, faith is a virtue, which means we grow in it by practicing it. Faith starts with a belief, a trust that's already there, and builds towards further faith. So in other words, like the centurion, it's the quality of faith to be able to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And as we grow in faith, as we grow in trust and in belief and in faithfulness, those heavenly realities that we do not see become more and more real to us, become increasingly the guiding principles and central desires of our lives. At the end of our reading, we read, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite quotes of his, said that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duck wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, or echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. That better country is real, is more real, in fact, than anything that you and I have ever seen or touched in this lake of shadows. This world is a shadow, a reflection, an echo of that new creation that Christ is even now bringing about in our midst. So together with Abel, with Enoch, with Noah and Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, and with all the saints who have gone before, let's make it the goal of our lives to seek that same country by faith and to help others do the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.